0: Confess our sins privately to God the Father. Make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to take in His Word. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity we have to study Your Word. Father, we recognize that all that we have comes from You, the air we breathe, the food we eat, the clothes on our back. Everything we have comes from You, especially our salvation. Father, You have given Your unique Son to die on the cross as a substitute for us. The perfect Lamb of God who knew no sin was made sin for us. And as He hung on the cross on Golgotha between heaven and earth, all the sins of the human race were poured out upon him we cannot imagine the suffering, the pain, the torment that he went through on our behalf Father we have salvation because of that by faith alone in Christ alone that work becomes our work and his perfect sacrifice opens the door for us to have eternal life and eternal relationship with you And, Father, it is not just enough to be saved, but we must press on to spiritual maturity. For you saved us for a purpose, that is to glorify you in the angelic conflict. So, Father, now we come to study your word, which tells us how we should live, so that we might glorify you as we grow to spiritual maturity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. Let me see, was that Wednesday night we had a siren the last time? (laughs) So that when it's time to teach God's Word, we're going to have a little announcement. Well, last week we began our study of John. Now, I want you to understand somewhat the, uh, my strategy here. And that is that on Sunday, the most basic of the three Bible classes that we're having, that's what we're covering now on Sunday morning. Now, this morning it may not seem that way to some of you because we have some rather technical things that we're going to uh, look at. And uh, our passage that we'll look at it. At the beginning this morning in John 1. But generally, I want this to be the most basic class. Uh, Galatians study will be just a little more advanced, and then our most technical study will come on Wednesday night in James. And that way, it sort of hits everybody at different levels. If you're fairly new to the Christian life, the spiritual life, fairly new to the study of the Bible, don't be scared off of James. We're just going to go more slowly in a little more depth, try to get more out of it. It's the most practical in many ways of all the epistles in the New Testament. So there will be a tremendous amount of things that uh, you can take home with you. You know, a lot of people want that. I want to come to church so I can take something home and apply this afternoon. And uh, I don't think that's a very realistic uh, attitude, but it's the attitude that many people do have. Uh, it's sort of like the analogy I used last week, that if you're going to uh, have that attitude, it would be like thinking on, on Monday What muscles am I going to use this week? I'll just exercise those muscles to prepare for this week. I won't exercise any other muscles. And we all know why that's going to break down. We need to uh, exercise our entire musculature on a regular basis so that we stay in shape, so that our cardiovascular system stays in shape and so that we maintain primary health. We don't just exercise what we're going to use that week or the next week. So we need to study the entire realm of doctrine, Because it all works together, it's all interrelated, and it's all vital to us and part of our spiritual life. Although a lot of it may not be applicable today or tomorrow, it builds that reservoir, that storehouse of of doctrinal knowledge in our souls so that when the time comes, it's there for us to draw on it. What I've discovered in most things in life, when the time comes, if I haven't prepared for it, then it's too late to get the preparation So we need to do that on a weekly basis by attending Bible class Sunday morning, both times on Sunday morning as well as Wednesday night. So this is our most basic study, to look at the Gospel of John, to understand some things about the uh, ministry of our Lord on the earth, to understand some important things about eternal life and the Gospel. And uh, this is a great opportunity for you to bring friends, someone you know, someone who... Uh, You're not sure if they're saved. This is a great opportunity and time for you to bring them if uh, you want to make sure they understand the gospel and hear it, hear it clearly. So we'll begin this morning in John chapter 20 verse, verses 30 and 31. This is roughly where we ended last week. This verse gives us the purpose for which John wrote this gospel. Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So that tells us right away that John's approach was to look at everything that Jesus had done and then to select certain things to, to write about. Now, what was, the, uh, what was it that governed his selection? What was it that determined what he would put in the Gospel of John and what not? That's in the next verse. But these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, when we look at verse 31, it says, These things, and what we have here is the uh, neuter plural of the near demonstrative tauta, or hutas, which refers to these things. What things is he talking about? The things that are mentioned in verse 30. Many other signs. So the correct translation of John twenty thirty one would be, But these signs have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So this book is, revolves around certain signs that Jesus has performed as part of his ministry that are the calling card of who he is as the Messiah. How do we know that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Well, one reason is because of what he did. He performed the acts of deity, the acts that only God could perform. Now, there are seven signs listed in the Gospel of John. And this roughly will will be the outline of the Gospel. First of all, he changes the water into wine at the bridal feast in Cana of Galilee in 2 1 through 11. This is the first of the signs that Jesus did. The second sign is the healing of the official son in Capernaum in chapter 4 verses 46 through 54. Third, he heals the cripple at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem in chapter 5 verses 1 through 18. Fourth, he feeds the 5,000 near the Sea of Galilee in chapters 6, 5 through 14. Fifth, he walks on the water in six sixteen through 21. Sixth, he heals a blind man in 9, 1 through 7. And seven, he resuscitates Lazarus from the dead. This is not resurrection. Resurrection gives you a brand new body, a body that is not subject to corruption, Lazarus' body was still subject to corruption, and Lazarus eventually died physically. Uh, he was resuscitated. That's 11.1-45. These are the seven signs around which John structures his gospel. Now, he says here that these signs have been written for a purpose. That purpose is that you might believe something. To believe what? First of all, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So the signs demonstrate something about Jesus of Nazareth. They demonstrate that he is not merely a man, but that he is who he claimed to be, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, the Son of God, that he is fully God. He is undiminished deity united with true humanity in one person forever. That's what we call the hypostatic union. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, secondly, that's the first thing, and that believing, you might have life in his name. That is not merely eternal life, life without end, because even the unbeliever has eternal life in a way. His soul never disintegrates. It never stops existing. It continues to exist forever and ever, but in a place of eternal punishment in the lake of fire. So these things are written that you might believe, first of all, that Jesus is the Christ. So he's going to uh, set forth the credentials of Jesus that demonstrate that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that as a result of that, we might believe in him and have eternal life. So we need to start this morning by asking the question, what is faith? So we're going to begin with the study Of the doctrine of faith. Now one of the first things we have to understand. By way of definition. I have four points. By way of definition. That there are three different ways. Or four different ways in which people know things. Knowledge. I'm going to give you a nice 50 cent word for this. That I use every now and then. And that is epistemology. Epistemology is that branch of philosophy related to knowledge. How do you know what you know? What is the basis of knowledge? How do you come to know truth? What is your authority for knowing truth? Over the history of human thought, there are basically four systems that have been developed for for knowledge. The first is called rationalism. Rationalism is the idea that all truth starts, to come to know truth, it all starts in the mind. Plato was an ancient rationalist. The father of modern rationalism was a uh, Jesuit uh, geometrician by the name of René Descartes. And his famous principle is, I think, therefore I am. And what Descartes was using is the principle of skepticism. How do I know anything is true? How do I really know that I see you? Can I trust my senses? Maybe you're not really there. Maybe God is just—I'm uh, just in existence here, and God's just putting you out on a like a movie—a uh, uh, movie projection screen, and I'm seeing you, but you don't really exist. How do I know that you really exist? I—I'm not sure anything out there exists. How do I know that all this isn't just a figment of God's imagination, and uh, uh, maybe we don't exist at all? How do I know this? Well, let me think. Oh, I'm thinking, therefore I must exist. That was his starting point. That's what he means when he says, I think, therefore I am. I can doubt the existence of everything else. Maybe it's an illusion. Maybe God's fooling me. But because I'm engaged in the process of cogitation, I must exist. So he starts from that point, a principle in his mind, I think, therefore I am, and he's going to start from there and try to logically develop a basis for all knowledge. So rationalism starts with principles in the mind alone and proceeds outward on the basis of rigid, logical argumentation. Second system of knowledge, or the second school of epistemology, is empiricism. In the ancient world, Aristotle was an empiricist. Empiricism has as its starting point the senses. Seeing, hearing, touching, smelling. These are our senses. You start with what you see, what you sense. So their basic assumption is that you can trust the senses and that the mind is basically empty and you have to start from sense data. And once again, it proceeds from these basic assumptions or first principles using a rigid system of argumentation based on logic to arrive at, uh, at various conclusions. A third system, which is the, in many ways the opposite of the previous two, is mysticism. Mysticism, like rationalism, starts in the mind. Starts not with the senses, but what's in the mind. But it, its basic principle is intuitive. And it is, instead of being logical, it is irrational. The various points that a mystic comes up with, I just know this is true because it feels right. He can believe anything he wants to. In fact, logic is the enemy. Logic is not good. If you're trying to be logical with the mystic, you're trying to use a very bad methodology there. You're you're immediately wrong because logic can never get you to truth. And we live in a time in this country and in our culture when mysticism is dominating the thought of our culture. The average guy on the street may not have a clue as to what mysticism is, but let me tell you, he's an operating and functional mystic. And so are many of the lawmakers, many of the people in our culture. And one of the, the, the fancy name that this is being given today is postmodernism. Now we'll discuss this in more detail as time goes by, but you, it really, if you, it, if you have a, a phrase or a school of thought like this to, to sort of hang your data on, then all of a sudden a lot of things that are going on in the world will begin to make sense to you. Last year I got a book called, uh, what was it, The Death of Truth. Excellent book, excellent basic analysis of uh, post-modern thinking. See, modernism was what came in with the uh, Enlightenment in the 18th and 19th century and was primarily a combination of rationalism and empiricism. It was rigidly logical. And the assumption that in these human systems of knowledge is that on the basis of human, the human intellect, on the basis of human logic, on the basis of human senses, you can get to absolute truth and make sense of everything. Well, the good side of postmodernism is that it recognizes that that's not true. Human, human reason and human sense data is not enough to arrive at absolute truth. So, post, postmodernism is going to react against modernism and say that that's all wrong. So, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And they get rid of all logic and all reason. So now logic and reason become the enemy. So if you're going to sit down and try to be logical, you're going to sit down and try to argue on the basis of reason then, uh, to truth, then you're immediately wrong. Nothing has to agree. Nothing has to be consistent. In fact, one of the greatest examples I saw of this came out of the White House about six, no, five months ago, four months ago in the context of all of this stuff that's been going on with Monica Lewinsky and was when it first broke and I believe the White House spokesman was Mike McCurry, McCrory and he's up there and he's taking, fielding questions from the press corps and all of this had just broken and I think uh, uh, our president had just had uh, his first uh, deposition on the Paula Jones case in which it came out that he admitted to having an affair with Jennifer Flowers a few years before and so they, uh, they immediately, a smart reporter raises his hand and says, now, now wait a minute, how can we trust what's going on here? Because five or six years ago when he was first running for president and Steve Croft with 60 Minutes uh, had an interview with, uh, with uh, President and Mrs. Clinton and asked him at that time if he had ever had a, a, a sexual relationship with uh, Jennifer Flowers and the president denied it. He said, okay, six years ago he denied ever having a sexual affair with Jennifer Flowers. And now in this deposition. Uh, Mr. McCroy. He has uh, admitted to an affair. Which is true. You know what he said? They're both true. That's what he said. Stood right there at his pulpit. And said they're both true. That's classic post not that, that would not have flown 20 years ago. Because we hadn't gone through a cultural shift. Away from uh, a post-enlightenment period. But now the enlightenment and reason and rationalism are all wrong. Nothing has to be logically consistent. In fact, if it is, it's probably going to be wrong. So now we live in an era when when uh, you don't have to be logical anymore. It just has to has to sound good or feel good. That's what's going on in our country. So we live in an era where mysticism is dominating the thought forms of people in our culture from the highest office in the land all the way down. In contrast to this, we have a fourth system of knowledge which is based upon faith. Faith is trust in someone else or something else, another authority. And faith means, is basically a non-meritorious system of knowledge based on confidence in the authority and veracity of another. Faith is also, as we shall see, based on knowledge has as its object knowledge and is rational. It's not rationalism. It is rational because it is reasonable and it is logical. So therefore, if you're in mysticism, which operates on a irrational modus operandi, then that is going to be at odds and antagonistic to any other system that operates on logic, or reason as a means of arriving at truth. Now, our starting point is not the human mind alone. Our starting point is not human senses. Our starting point, as Christians, is the revelation of God. And so we start with divine revelation, and then we develop, we understand it through the use of our minds, our intellect, and we develop thoughts from it Based upon the right use of reason or logic, and we're going to see why all of this is important as we study the, the doctrine of faith. So, faith is one of four systems of human knowledge. Perception by faith is always non-meritorious. The, the faith itself has no merit. The person who exercises faith it has no merit. Faith. Gains all of its merit from its object. From its object. So therefore, what does faith mean? Faith means to trust. It means to rely on. It means to have confidence in. It means to believe something is true. It means to accept something to be true. Faith means to trust. To rely on to have confidence in, to believe something to be true, to accept something to be true. That's what faith means. Faith does not mean to commit to, does not mean to invite Jesus into your heart. It does not mean to feel. All of these have to do with with emotion or something that is not related at all to the basic meaning of the word. So that brings us to to a proper understanding of the Greek underlying faith. So that is what is known as etymology, and that is the study of word meanings. So what's the etymology here? We have several different Greek words that are important. The first is pistis. P I S T I S, Pistis. Pistis is sometimes used as an attribute. It's that which causes trust or faith, reliability, faithfulness, or integrity. Uh, it's used in this sense in Titus 2.10 and 2 Thessalonians 1.4. It's what causes trust or faith, reliability, faithfulness, or integrity. In the active sense, pistis means faith, confidence, trust, belief. And it's used three different ways in the Bible. First of all, it refers to saving faith. The faith, the trust that an unbeliever expresses towards Jesus Christ that moves him from being an unbeliever to a believer. Saving faith when he accepts the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now that's very important. It is there when you have the phrase through faith, in the Greek, it is dia plus the genitive, which indicates means. If it had been dia, it's D-I-A in the English, plus the accusative case, it would have been cause. But it's not dia plus the accusative. It's not cause. It is not, for by grace you have been saved because of faith. Faith is not the cause of your salvation. The cause of your salvation is the grace of God and the saving work of Christ on the cross. Faith is merely the means of your salvation, the means by which you appropriate Christ's work on the cross to yourself. So we are saved by grace through faith. It is the channel by which God gives you salvation. Saving faith is one meaning of faith secondly we have the faith rest drill the faith rest drill it can refer to uh, mixing promises with faith that's when you know promises and one of the things that you should be doing is memorizing the promises of God how can you exercise the faith rest drill in your daily life on the job at the grocery store uh, fighting traffic Uh, dealing with bill collectors, dealing with employers or employees or whatever it may be, how can you exercise the faith rest drill and claim promises if you don't know promises? You need to be memorizing Scripture. I don't know if this is done uh, downstairs with the kids as part of there. I think it is because I've seen it in the bulletin. But memorizing promises is important. At times, um, people have commented to me about how much Scripture I know I've memorized over the past. And a lot of it is because I memorized these scriptures when I was a kid. Going to Sunday school, we had to memorize scripture. When I'd go off to summer camp, we had to memorize scripture. And that gave me a tremendous background before I went to seminary. But we lose sight of some of these basic fundamentals of the Christian life. You need to be memorizing the key promises of God so that these are in your mind, and your soul, so that at key times you can recall these these promises. It is the word of God. What does uh, uh, Hebrews 4.12 say? For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the words of Scripture that are, that are important. And we should memorize those. So part of the faith rest drill is the object of our faith then. And the faith rest drill are the promises of God. Secondly, the doctrines of Scripture. We use the doctrines of Scripture. We know certain principles. You can follow this through in the Psalms when David meets a, meets a problem, an adversary, a heartache. Uh, he feels like he's surrounded by enemies. What does he do? He immediately starts thinking in many of the Psalms of the essence of God and he starts talking about the faithfulness of God, the, the faithful love of God. Uh, and, and he takes these doctrines related to the essence of God and he argues And he sets up a rationale and he argues then to certain conclusions that because these things are true, because you are faithful, because you love me, because you are immutable and steadfast, therefore I can always count on you, God, because you are greater than any problem that I might ever face, then then if you are for me, who can be against me? Paul uses that argument in Romans 8. So these are arguments moving from specific promises to specific doctrines, and then drawing doctrinal conclusions. That's the faith rest drill. There is also a passive meaning. That's the active meaning. There's also a passive meaning for faith in which it refers to what is believed. And that is basically what we call Bible doctrine, the principles that are extracted from the Scriptures. So what is believed, sometimes uh, pistis refers to Bible doctrine. What is believed, these a couple of passages here, Galatians 1:23, uh, 2 Peter 1:5, 1. 1 Timothy uh, 119. Once again, Galatians: 1. 23, 2 Peter 1:5, 1. 1 Timothy 1:19. 1. Okay, the verb pistuo, which is used 98 times in the Gospel of John. The verb is used, the noun is not used. The verb is used 98 times, and that means to believe, to trust something or someone, to express belief in some object. Acts 16.31 uses it this way as a command, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So the verb pistuo, which is used 98 times in the gospel, which tells you something about the importance of faith, To understanding the gospel of John means to believe, to trust something or to trust someone or to express belief in an object. Furthermore, and finally in terms of etymology, in the Greek you have two phrases. Pisteuo, P-I-S-T-E-U-O is the verb. Pistuo, and then you have two prepositions, ace, which is sometimes translated that, e-i-s, and n-e-n-n. In English, sometimes we try we get into discussions and people say, well, it's just academic faith to believe that Jesus died. It's just academic faith, academic knowledge to believe a proposition, Jesus died for me. You have to have you have to trust the person of Christ. You have to have more than a head faith, brother. You have to have a heart faith if you're going to make it to heaven. And they want to draw a distinction between just believing that to believing in. You have to believe in Jesus. You don't just believe that Jesus. Except that betrays an absolute ignorance of Greek grammar. For throughout the Gospel of John, John uses these phrases interchangeably. The technical term is that they're semantic equivalents. What that means is they mean the same thing. They are synonyms. They mean identical things. Believe that, believe in, it doesn't matter. When you believe in Jesus, you have to believe that Jesus. You have to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he died on the cross for your sins. We do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, many people who had personal relationships with Jesus Christ weren't saved. Judas wasn't saved. James and all the other brothers and sisters of Jesus knew him all their lives. They didn't trust him as their Savior until after the resurrection. Having a personal relationship with Jesus is not the issue. The issue is believing what Scripture says about Jesus. And this was the whole issue I went over last week with Thomas. Thomas had a personal relationship with the Lord. The Lord was right there in front of him, the resurrected Lord. And Thomas reaches out and he has to feel the wounds in Jesus' side and in his hands before he trusts Christ. And what is the response of the Lord? He says, Behold, you have seen me, Thomas. You have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and believe. See, belief is based on proposition. It's not based on empirical data. It's not based on rational data. It's based on a proposition given by an authority that we believe something to be true about Jesus Christ and that is what the Scripture says. So what then is the meaning of faith? What then shall we say that faith means? I have ten points. First of all, faith is a mental activity Triggered by volition. As such, faith is not an emotion. Emotion cannot be commanded. I can't say, be angry, be happy, be sad. I can't do that. But I can say, believe, and you can choose to believe or not choose to believe. Emotion does not respond to commands, but the mind does respond to commands. Faith is a mental activity triggered by volition. Secondly, Faith is always directed toward an object which can be expressed as a proposition. Faith is always directed towards an object which can be expressed as a proposition. The proposition is that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, and if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. Do you believe that? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, He said to uh, uh, to, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, shall, shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the point. Do you believe this? Faith is always directed toward an object which can be expressed as a proposition. What's a proposition? A proposition is the expression of a thought which can be verified or falsified. That's a proposition. Any statement, it's not just a word like faith, but it's a proposition. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That's a proposition. It can either be verified or falsified. Point number three, therefore you do not believe in a person or come to salvation through a relationship with Jesus. But first, no matter who you are, you believe the propositions in Scripture that inform you about Jesus and His saving work on the cross. We are people of the book. It's always been true about Jews in the Old Testament, Christians in the New Testament are people of the book. We believe that Scripture is propositional revelation. That's the phrase theologians use. It's not feeling. We do not come to the Scriptures to have an emotional encounter or a mystical encounter with God so that we go away feeling better. We come to learn specific things that God has given to us. It is propositional in nature. So we're not saved first and foremost. We're putting the cart before the horse as a result of our faith, our acceptance of these propositions. Then we can have a relationship with Jesus. We can come to know the Jesus of Scripture and have a relationship with Him. But first, we must believe the propositions in Scripture. So salvation is not based in believing in a person or coming to a salvation we do not come to salvation through a relationship with Jesus. But first, we believe the propositions in Scripture that inform us about Jesus and His saving work on the cross. And that means that faith is rational. It has rational content to it. It's based on knowledge. It is not irrationalism. It is not subjectivism. It is not emotional. It is at its very core reasonable and rational and has to do with rational content, which takes us to verse 2.4. Therefore, faith is an activity of the mentality of the soul which is directed towards a proposition. It is an activity of the mentality of the soul that is directed towards a proposition. The scripture, therefore, is the object of faith for the immature believer, for the un- for the. Unbeliever and for the immature believer, the scripture is the object of faith. And for the mature believer, the doctrine that is extrapolated from scripture is the object of faith as he grows to maturity. It's not simply the scripture, but the doctrine that is derived and extrapolated from scripture. Faith is an activity of the mentality of the soul, which is directed toward a proposition. Point number five. Faith has no merit in itself. Has no merit in itself. It is not faith that saves. It is not faith that saves. How many times do you hear people say, well, just have faith. Just believe. You can't just have faith. What you're really saying if you say just have faith is have faith in faith. Because faith must always have an object when you say just believe, what are you saying? Belief in belief is mysticism. Faith in faith is mysticism. All the merit lies in the object of faith, not in faith itself. For example, it doesn't matter how much faith I have or how sincere I am. It doesn't matter how much faith I have that I have a thousand dollars in my checking account if I only have a dollar in my checking account. If I believe that I have a $1,000 in my checking account and go out and go down to the store and buy a washing machine or buy a new freezer or buy a VCR computer and I only have a dollar, I'm in real trouble. doesn't matter how much faith I have. It's the object of faith that matters. It's what you believe that makes a difference. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. You can be sincerely wrong. What matters is what you believe. The one who believes has no merit in himself. All the merit is in the object of faith. Point six. Faith then, as an intellectual activity of the soul, excludes emotion, irrationalism, and mysticism. This is an important point, especially in today's world. Faith as an intellectual activity excludes emotion, irrationalism, and mysticism. Now that doesn't mean that as you believe what Christ did for you, that that may not have an emotional response of happiness and joy and relief. What I am saying is that faith itself, the activity of believing for salvation excludes emotion. It is not emotion. You may not feel anything. And you may feel something. Everybody's different. Faith as an Activity excludes emotion, irrationalism, and mysticism. And when these are made part of faith, they destroy faith. That's what we're going to get to in our study in Galatians chapter 1. If faith plus anything equals nothing. When you add anything to faith, it destroys faith. And it becomes works. The spiritual life is based on faith in the gospel. Uh, or in the, in the doctrines of the words. Eternal life is based on faith in the gospel. Seventh, faith is rational and logical in conformity with the ultimate person of the universe. In a few minutes, we're going to get into John 1.1. 1, 1, and we're going to discover that one of the titles for the second person of the Trinity is the Logos of God. And we're going to look at what Logos means. And Logos, if you haven't clicked on it yet, is the word from which we get our English word, logic. Whenever you study biology, zoology, anything with ology at the end, that comes from this Greek word logos, which has to do with knowledge, reason, logic. So when John starts off talking about the eternal second person of the Trinity, and he's going to latch on to the most basic, fundamental, essential quality, he doesn't deal with anything other than reason, logic, knowledge. That ultimately God is rational logical and we can understand him therefore we may not understand him exhaustively we may not know everything there is to know about God only God has exhaustive knowledge but we can know truth about God that will never change when we get to heaven we may understand it more fully but we will not understand it differently so therefore we can have confidence that when we understand the scriptures today that will not change it may be, we may understand it more in a a fuller sense, but not in a different sense. So faith is rational and logical, which is in conformity with the ultimate person of the universe, the Logos of God. Eighth, all the faith in the world secures nothing but condemnation from the integrity of God. No matter how much faith you have, all you're going to get from it is condemnation from God. It's the object of faith that makes the difference. When your faith is in Jesus Christ, that makes the difference. Jesus Christ is the object of faith. Everybody has faith. Everybody exercises faith. They learn everything on the basis of faith. You're sitting there as a small child and your parents say, the sky is blue, and you believe it. They say one plus one equals two, and you believe it. Everybody learns everything on the basis of faith, so everybody has faith. It's not faith that saves. It's the object of faith that's safe, that saves. So all the faith in the world secures nothing but condemnation. It's the object of faith that makes the difference. Which is point nine. The tiniest bit of faith, like a mustard seed, which is almost microscopic, the tiniest bit of faith in Christ secures eternal salvation. Because you do nothing to earn salvation, you can do nothing to lose salvation. Whenever you talk to anybody that is afraid that they're losing, they can lose their salvation then somewhere hidden in their thinking, they're doing something to get saved or to maintain their salvation. It's based upon them. Christ's work for them is not sufficient. It's not total. Uh, The tiniest bit of faith secures eternal salvation because Jesus Christ paid it all. When He said, Tetelestai, before He died, which is the Greek for it is finished, means paid in full, completely, totally. He paid for everything. And all we have to do is accept that by faith. It's the object of faith that counts. It's not your works. It's not how worthy you are. It's not even how smart you are to believe. It is simply the fact that you trust in Christ and the object of your faith then is applied to you and you are saved. And tenth, faith is not something we do. It is not the cause of our salvation, but it is the channel by which we appropriate what God has done for us. Faith is not the cause of our salvation. It's not something we do. It is non-meritorious. It is the channel by which we appropriate what God has done for us. Now, three short points of application, and then we'll do an overview of the epistle, I mean of the gospel, and then get started in John 1-1. Application, number one, there's no biblical distinction between head and heart belief. In fact, heart in the Bible, almost if it doesn't refer to the physical organ that beats and pumps blood through your circulatory system, then it refers to the mentality of the soul. Heart almost consistently refers to the mentality of the soul, unless it refers to the physical organ. It never refers to emotion. It always refers to the mind. Therefore, when when it says something like to believe with the heart, that's the, that's the innermost part of the mentality of the soul. They're saying believe with your mind. That's how that should be translated. The heart is the innermost part of the mentality of the soul. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What do you do in your heart? You think, not emote. So there's no biblical distinction between head belief and heart belief. And and why this is important is when you get out and you're talking to somebody who believes in lordship salvation or some other screwed up view of salvation, they'll come into the Gospel of John and there's some passages where it says that these people believed, like at the end of John chapter 2, the people believed in him but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. They say, well, they believed but it wasn't saving faith. Well, that's not what John means. They were saved. It's just that they weren't sanctified yet. You know they hadn't grown spiritually, and so they they were still governed by, by uh, and acting like unbelievers. So Jesus wasn't going to entrust himself to them. But they were believers. Point two: saving faith is not a different kind of faith. See, that's where the argument is. Saving faith is not a different kind of faith, but a faith with a saving object. The difference between believing that that chair will hold me. And believing in the cross is not a difference in faith. It's a belief that the cross will save me. An example of this and how it gets into all areas of Christianity is in a hymn that has always been one of my favorites. I haven't sung it in years. And I was going to sing it this morning. And I read the verses. It's the hymn, I know whom I have believed. I'm sure that many of you have sung that. Verse 2, it says, I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart. And that's saying that saving faith is something different from all other faith because God needed to give me saving faith. And that comes from hyper-Calvinism. Faith is faith. The issue is the object, not the kind of faith. I don't need to be given a new kind of faith. That uh, him. Revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in him. That faith needs to be created in me. No, you already have the capacity as an unbeliever to express faith in anything. It's what you express faith in that makes the difference. This is what happened to the definition of faith after Calvin died. When Calvin wrote about faith, he said that faith is nothing more than than to assent to the truths or propositions which God has revealed. That's how Calvin defined faith. But his successor was a man by the name of Theodore Beza, And Beza added something to faith, and in his definition of faith, he created the distinction between faith and saving faith. And the result of that was in the system commonly known as Calvinism. You enter into this... That's why so many people who are advocates of lordship salvation are rigid Calvinists. And they view faith as a gift from God, as something different from everyday faith. And it is something more than assent to the truth of a proposition. Calvin was right. His successors destroyed his system. And then the third point in terms of application is that salvation is not based on a personal relationship with Christ. Judas had that, James had that, and all the brothers and sisters had that. Salvation is based on the acceptance of a true proposition that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Now, today we live in an era that is dominated by anti-intellectualism. That's why people don't want to come to a doctrinal church. They don't want to come to church and think. They want to come to church and emote. They want to come to church and feel like they're close to God. They want to come to church and either through ritual like in many churches, the rituals make them feel good or all of the excitement and jumping up and down and singing and everything else make them feel good and get their emotions all jazzed up and elevated. When reason is debunked and reason and logic are no longer viewed as something valuable, then what goes into the vacuum is anti-intellectualism and mysticism. And the teaching, the principle of study God's Word verse by verse Word for word, line upon line, precept on on precept, then then falls away and the church no longer pays attention to the details of Scripture. And this is exactly what we're experiencing today. The idea today is to put the mind in neutral and engage your emotions. If you want to get close to God, then you have to have an encounter with Jesus. Jesus. And that comes apart from the analysis of Scripture. Analysis is just going to do away with your emotions and you'll be just a cold, dead rationalist. And all you're going to do is go there and think. But what the Bible teaches is put your emotions in neutral. Because most of the time when the Bible talks about emotions, it talks about emotional sins. Put the emotions in neutral and engage your mind. Think, think, think. The spiritual life is a life of thinking Bible doctrine. It is not a life of emoting. The principle, if you emphasize and rely on your emotions as a believer, you're going to fail in the spiritual life. You'll still go to heaven, but in terms of your spiritual life and spiritual growth, you will be a failure. You must put your focus on doctrine. And you know that you're going to be exercising faith when what the Bible says is more real to you than how you feel are your subjective impressions. Now, I want you to get that. Very few people understand that. You know that you're exercising faith when what the Bible says is more real to you than how you feel are your subjective impressions. And remember what John wrote in the first verse of of this gospel. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was reason. In the beginning was logic. He doesn't say in the beginning was emotion." Now, when we look at the Gospel, we're going to see, the in terms of just the overview and how it's outlined, a very simple outline. We begin with a prologue in the first 18 verses. From 1-1 down to 18, there's a prologue which emphasizes the eternal logos of God and how the logos, the Word, became flesh or incarnate. So the prologue is the introduction of the eternal Logos incarnate. 1 1 through 18, the introduction of the eternal Logos of God incarnate. The second major division begins in 119 and goes through 1250, the end of chapter 12. And these are seven signs. The seven signs that testify that Jesus is the Messiah. From 119 to 1250, we have seven signs which testify to Jesus the Messiah. And then the third division, from chapter 13 through chapter 20, we have the greatest sign, which is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have seven signs in 119 to 1250, And then the greatest sign in 13 to 20. There are two subsections to that. The first is 13 through uh, 17, which is the preparation. And then uh, uh, 18 through 20, which is the crucifixion and resurrection. And then chapter 21 is the epilogue. And in the epilogue, we see the final statement related to Jesus as the Messiah. So this is our basic working outline. So we have a view of the forest. And we're going to talk about the signs that show, that demonstrate who Jesus is and give our our faith credibility. It's not irrational. It's very rational. It's based upon compelling evidence and data. So turn with me now to John 1.1 and we will begin with the first couple of phrases in the gospel. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning face to face with God. All things came into existence through Him, and without Him or apart from Him Nothing came into existence which has come into existence. In Him was life. And that life was the light of man, of men, of mankind. And the light shines continually in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it or accept it. Let's begin with our analysis of the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this is very simple. And like I said last week, anybody who studied Greek knows that the first thing you do as soon as you get a little Greek under your belt is you begin to to translate John chapter 1. And you look at this, and I remember my first year of Greek. Boy, this is simple. Of course, I already knew it in English. I would memorized it years before. So it was real easy. makes you feel real confident that you're doing something. And the simplicity of this is, is almost deceptive, because John writes in such a way that the smallest child can find something of value by studying the Gospel of John. And the most erudite thinker can have his thinking challenged profoundly by what this writer says. So there's something here for everyone. No matter how much you study it, you will never plumb the depths of what's here. This is the most incredible writing that you'll ever find. He doesn't have the complexity of a Paul, but in his simplicity, he's profound. It sort of reminds me, I've had the opportunity to study under a lot of different men in the ministry, and he sort of reminds me of a Dr. Ryrie. Most of you, I think, are familiar with the Ryrie Study Bible. And Charles Ryrie was the head of the Systematic Theology Department at Dallas Seminary for um, a number of years, from the late 50s on up to the early 80s. And I just count a tremendous privilege that not only did I have the opportunity to study under him, but also got to know him personally. And Dr. Ryrie is one of those men who always tries to make the complex simple. And he works hard at it. He's got a book out that some of you may want to pick up and read sometime called Basic Theology. It's more than just a handbook on basic do- doctrine; it's sort of an introduction in basic theology. And and he just does a remarkable job of taking some complex doctrines and bringing them down and explaining them in terms that everybody ought to be able to understand. And and, and sometimes we tend to make doctrine more complex, take the simple and make it complex. And sometimes I think Paul did that uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that's not a negative criticism. But John takes the complex and makes it incredibly simple, but yet overwhelmingly profound. The first phrase in the Greek is probably as far as we'll get this morning. In the beginning is the phrase in Arke. En is a preposition. Arke is the word meaning first principles, beginning, foremost, Sometimes it's translated principalities in some of the passages that that talk about the angels. uh, uh, But it basically has the meaning of primacy. First, beginning. This is a preposition which means in. In or it can mean by means of, or a number of other things, but here it means in, preposition for, local, for a temporal preposition here, in archa, in plus the the, uh, the dative, in RK. Now, one thing you notice here is that in the English, it translates it with a definite article. It says, in the beginning. Now, there's no definite article in the Greek. Now, this morning, I said we're going to get a little grammar lesson. Now, in English, if you want something indefinite, you leave out the article. If you want something definite, then you put the definite article in there. But in Greek, the absence of the definite article does not necessarily make the word definite. You have three options here. Option number one is that the noun is inherently uh, is indefinite, which would be in a beginning. Option number two would take that, that the noun is inherently definite or that the preposition itself takes the place of the definite article, in which case the noun would be definite and you would translate it in the beginning. And the third way to take it would be that, that the absence of the definite article is here to emphasize the quality of the noun. See, often, and we're going to see this in this very passage Often, a an, an definite article is left out in the Greek not to make the noun indefinite, but to emphasize the essence or the quality of a thing. And this is very important in the last phrase here, and the word was God. Now, in the original, there's no definite article in front of God. And the Jehovah's Witnesses translate that in their New World Translation, and the word was a God. So if you want to know how to handle the Jehovah's Witnesses next week, when they come knocking on your door, you're going to have to be here. I mean, when they come knocking on your door, you're going to have to be here next week because we won't get that far today. But that's one of the most important aspects of this whole passage and its implication for the doctrine of the Trinity. So first of all, as we look at these, these are our three options. Well, Herr Doktor Gerhard Delling who writes in Kittel's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, writes about this word arche, that in its temporal significance, it denotes beginning in the exact sense, i.e., the place in a temporal sequence at which something new, which is also finite, commences. Let me read that again. In its temporal significance, it denotes beginning in the exact sense. That's the definite idea right there. The exact sense. What he is saying is this word, "arcade" is inherently definite. It doesn't need a definite article to be definite. It is inherently definite. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around very many people speaking British English. But if you're speaking to a Brit, they don't go to the hospital and they don't go to the university. They go to hospital and they go to university. In British English, hospital and university are, are nouns that are inherently definite. You don't put a V in front of them to make them definite. Now, in American English, we always have to uh, put that definite article in there. But the Brits don't. And the same thing was true in Greek. You didn't have to put the definite article in there to make archae a definite noun. So that's what uh, Kittle says about this, is that, the number one, the noun is inherently def, uh, definite. Secondly, we need to observe that whenever... This noun occurs with the preposition in the New Testament. The article is always, always absent. It's used about 50 times in the New Testament, and about 40 of those times it's used with a preposition, either apo from the beginning or in in the beginning. Uh, Never has an article if it's got a, I mean, never has an article if it has a preposition, not once. That tells you automatically that when this noun takes a preposition, the preposition replaces the definite article. Not only that, but of the ten times that the noun occurs without a preposition, five of those times it occurs without a definite article. But in those phrases where it uses where just the just the word appears, archaic, without a preposition, without the definite article, it's meaningless. If it's taken indefinitely. For example, in uh, Mark 1.1, I'll just read it for you. It reads, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, would that make sense to say a beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? No, it wouldn't. It's the beginning. It's inherently definite. Uh, It's used as a preposition uh, or without the preposition also in Matthew 24.8 in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus said, but all these things are the beginning of birth pangs. Would it make sense to say, but all these things are a beginning of birth pangs? No, it would not. In Acts 11.15, we read, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as He did. Peter speaking, and he's referring this back to Pentecost. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as He did upon us, at the beginning. Would that make sense to translate that? As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at a beginning. At a beginning? No, He's talking about Pentecost. The specific point in time, in space-time history, when the church began. And in Acts 26.4, So then all Jews, Paul is talking, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning... I wouldn't say from a beginning, but from the beginning, was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. So the point we see here is that this phrase, arche, should be translated with the definite article. Accurate translation. In the beginning. Now, the beginning of what? Well, as I quote from um, Herr Dr. Delling gives us, is that you have a point in time At that point in time, eternity ends and time commences. The beginning of creation, when God first created the universe, the heavens and the earth. To the Jew who read this, in Arche would immediately bring to his mind the very first phrase in his Greek Old Testament. By the time that John is writing, very few Jews could read Hebrew. They were. They read their Septuagint, the LXX, which was the Greek translation made in the 2nd and 3rd century BC of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the very first phrase, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the very first phrase, In the beginning, was translated into Greek in archaic. So the first thing a Jewish reader is going to read when he sees this and think about is Genesis 1.1. At that point in time, when God created the universe, what? That's the verb from the imperfect active indicative of a me, meaning already was existing. In the beginning, when everything began, the logos was already and continually existing in eternity past. And the point is the eternity of Jesus Christ is present in the Gospel of John from the very first clause. And eternal life is part of deity, and only God can have eternal life. So, from the very beginning, the Apostle John is making us understand that Jesus Christ is God. Now, to the Greek, this phrase would have had even greater significance. In Greek philosophy, the phrase arche stood for uh, uh, first principles. It was used in cosmic physics. Aristotle used it in uh, in his book on the physics and it denoted the original material from which everything in the universe evolved. That's why right, I said evolved. You see, the concept of evolution did not start with Darwin. The concept of evolution didn't even start with Aristotle. The concept of evolution started in an ancient Babylonian religion. Everything started from what? From chaos, and then it just sort of naturally came about. It was wrapped up in religious terms, and it was wrapped up in philosophical terms, and it, waited, and it awaited a few scientists in the 19th century to wrap it up in scientific terms, but evolution has been, the concept of evolution is Satan's uh, alternative to the truth about the origins of man. So even in ancient Greek philosophy, this term archae was wrapped up with religious and philosophical uh, concepts about the origin of the universe and the fundamental laws of the universe. Philosophers like Anaximander, Anaxagoras, the Pythagoreans, and Aristotle all used the term archae in this sense. So it was intimately connected with all uh, Greek thought about origins, God, and the fundamental realities of the universe. So if you were a Greek coming to the Gospel of John and reading this, then what John is getting ready to do is say, in the beginning of your first principles, you Greek philosopher, I, you never could go beyond. You know, When you're thinking, you try to get back to the... What's the beginning? Beyond that. What created that? Something else. What created that? Something else. They couldn't define what that was at the very beginning, so they just called it Arche, the first principles. And now John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is just going to blast right through that barrier, say, in the beginning, when the Arche began, the Logos was already in existence. It's eternal. And I'm going to tell you all about the ultimate realities of the universe your concepts of RK haven't even begun to touch the re, ultimate realities in the universe which is the subject of this gospel. That salvation comes in his name and he became a man so that he could go to the cross and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So we got into the first phrase in Arche Ein Halagos and we'll get to the second phrase and hopefully complete this first paragraph next Sunday morning with our heads bowed And our eyes closed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to get into your word this morning. There's so much here. The depths are so great that it is beyond our capacity to plumb them all. But the focus is on our salvation. And Father, I pray now that with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if there's anyone here this morning who does not have eternal life, who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they would do so now that the Holy Spirit would make the gospel clear to them that they must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved. Salvation is no in no other name under heaven. So, Father, now as we close out our time of worship this morning, we recognize that everything that we have and everything that we are comes from your grace, that nothing is due to any personal merit on our part, but it is all due to your magnificent love and grace in our lives. We thank You for this and we pray that throughout this week You will bring to our minds the things that we have learned that we can apply these things on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, Amen.